we're in week two of this series called My Life in Focus. And specifically what we're trying to do is look at how to turn the right vision in our life into reality. And so if you missed last week's message, you can catch it on our website. But over the next several weeks, we're aiming to build godly vision in life. And to define what that what godly vision is, it's getting a clear mental picture of, of what to accomplish in life. And it's of what God would want to accomplish. Getting a clear mental picture of what God would want us to accomplish. And then taking ownership of that. And really trying to apply that to the major areas of our lives. So the first area we're going to look at today is the area of generosity. That we would become more generous as people. And making the most of the resources that we've been given. Now, I know that talking about money creates inner turmoil at church. And so anytime we talk about money or we hear about money at church, it creates this kind of anxiety rise in our lives. And whenever the issue of money comes up, and it comes up on occasion in, in churches as you go to church. And so you might be having that experience right now going, oh, oh, here we go. And you're bracing yourself. And um, kind of like me going into Home Depot. I have a specific thing I want to do at Home Depot. I want to buy something. And, and someone walks up to me and they start talking to me, and I'm like shopping for a tool or something, and I'm, I'm lingering over a purchase that I, that I plan to make, and someone wants to talk, and I realize, we're not just talking, this is going somewhere, you know. Oh, and it's, and it's a sales pitch for something, you know. It's, it's new windows, new carpet, it's new garage door, it's solar, it's something like that. And again, I, I'm there for a specific purpose, and I don't, and, and so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll listen in and politely say, yeah, I'm not interested or whatever, but... So you might be thinking, yeah, I came here for a specific reason, and, and here he is going to bring up the big money issue. And, um, and I came in here to be in control, and now I know there's a sales pitch coming, or there's something coming, and so maybe right now you're breaking into a, a sweat, and you're like, oh, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of this conversation? And so if you're feeling that way right now, I want you to know that, and, and I'll admit, the issue of money can take center stage in church if churches aren't careful. Uh, at the same time, the issue of money is a major pressure point in our lives, and so it needs to come up. But it can take the wrong focus if it is allowed to do that. But I just want you to know, as I've been kind of prepping for this talk um, this morning, I just I have that in mind that this is an anxious subject, and so I, my aim is to to handle God's word carefully and accurately. And, and just be considered as we look at this issue. So, because I've been to Home Depot and bumped into a salesperson here and there. And so I understand the experience. This might be your version of that. So, um, but the truth is, our financial vision, it impacts our attitude. It impacts our, our actions in life. So I want to begin with a, a funny video clip from a reality show called Extreme Cheaps, Cheapskates. Okay? And I, I, so again, it's Extreme Cheapskates, and let's um, cue it up, and then we're going to get the, the volume nice and loud so that you can hear what this lady's saying here, and and just think about how you might identify with this um, this couple. My husband tries to stop me from spending. It's very annoying. This is my frozen assets. We have a credit card, but try not to abuse it. I freeze the credit card so that it's not easily accessible. And what I'm doing is thawing out the ice. And it's a lot of effort, so in order for my wife to use it, she has to put some labor into it. (laughs) 
these are my paper towels that have been used and reused and reused and reused and are still quite functional as you see they save about a hundred dollars a year in paper towels alone coffee is very expensive so instead of using it freely I kind of reuse it this one's gotten three or four cups out of it already but I'm still not done with it yet I have one more final use for it window cleaner costs probably around three dollars a spray bottle well I don't purchase it I make my own out of the coffee ground I shake it up although it appears to be dirty you will see how clean it can get a window I'm saving an additional three dollars every month or so which adds up to maybe forty fifty dollars a year clear as daylight my husband <laughs> there you go so extreme cheapskate <laughs> how do you identify with that clip I mean, maybe you feel restricted. Maybe you're like the wife and you're like, I feel that way. It's, it's, he's restricting me so much. Or maybe you're the husband and it's the wife that's restricting you from being able to, to just um, use you know, resources freely. Or maybe you just got some great ideas for saving some money right there. And it actually is sparking some other things in your mind. So I'm going to ask you to focus. Try not to get distracted like, I wonder what else we're wasting on. You know, uh, that's kind of gross. The, the paper towel thing, that was a little bit... That's way too extreme right there. So, uh, but this, this man's picture of money, his vision, his financial vision is linked to everything in the rest of his life. And having the right vision financially is something that the Bible addresses again and again. Jesus, he loved to tell stories to illustrate his points. Those stories were called parables. And so he, he shared many things in, in parables, these short stories. And nearly half of his parables in the New Testament somehow connect to money. Why? Well, because money and possessions reveal what's going on in our hearts. Our use of money, our thinking about money, it reveals so much about our hearts. And Jesus, He, in His ministry, He targeted the heart issues, didn't He? He just got right at the heart issues, the things that were most important to us. And we all have mixed emotions. We all have mixed motivations when it comes to money. There's the emotion of fear. Like it's all going to be gone just like that. Or it could be gone, so i gotta, I got I to gotta hold on to as much as I can. Or... And sometimes I found myself frozen in fear regarding the future and financial decisions. Like, what if this is the thing that just totally ruins? You know, and so their fear could take over. Or greed. I've battled with greed at many points. You've battled with greed, I'm sure, as well. It's the thought of, I need to get as much as I can as fast as I can. This can almost be an obsession. Pride. I battle with pride in regards to money. Or irritation. Like, why do people not take better care of themselves? Why are they always needing help? Why... Why aren't people more responsible with their money? Don't they know that, that you know, money doesn't grow on trees? So we have all these different emotions. and Whichever emotions you have, your vision of money has very real power in your life. And so here's a principle that the Bible teaches. You find this on your listening guide here that we've provided. There's a verse there, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7. But underneath that verse, which we're going to look at that verse, you see this principle. It's this. The measure of generosity that I use determines the harvest that God allows me to experience. Okay? The measure of generosity I use determines the harvest that God allows me to experience. God makes sure that the level of my generosity is intricately linked to 
my relationships, to my purpose in life, my emotions, my outlook. I cannot just compartmentalize this area of my money. You know, what's in my wallet or what's in my... I can't compartmentalize that area because it spills over into everything else. And I want to show you how this works by looking first at a crisis from the first century in the, in the early Christian church. There was a quick... There, were, there was a, a, a crisis. A crisis. And I want to give you a quick rundown of the crisis. Okay? Christians in Jerusalem were, in the first century, they were experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ. And so many people fled the persecution by just leaving Jerusalem and moving their, their families and settling in different places. And so here's a map of the Christian church around A.D. 70. So this is about 30 plus years after Jesus was, had left the scene already resurrected and ascended to where He is at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so about 30 years after those events occurred, this is a map of what local churches existed in AD 70. If you can see it, I mean, you can just kind of see the list at the bottom. It shows, you know, 34 churches in these different regions. And basically, what we see is how the, the gospel or the message of Jesus was on the move throughout Asia Minor, you know, outside of Jerusalem, basically. And, it, and up into Asia Minor, over into Europe, and spreading into Europe, heading towards Rome, and then even into North Africa. Persecution actually helped the spread of the gospel message outside of Jerusalem. Jesus said that the, that the, the Holy Spirit would empower the church to spread the message of Him. You know, first in Jerusalem, Judea, and then all the way to the ends of the earth, right? And, and this is how it happened. In many ways, it was the persecution that actually pushed the message further outside of Jerusalem and began impacting the rest of the world. So many people fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. However, some people chose to stay in Jerusalem. They didn't have the resources to just leave. And so they stayed put in what was familiar for them. And when the fam- there was a big famine that struck in the first century. And when the famine struck, many people were in need, especially those who were um, still there in Jerusalem, who did not flee. There was widows, there was orphans, there was those with disabilities. And in the church, in the Christian church, they were really struggling and starving to death. And so, you know, here's, a, here's an image kind of depicting the, the Jerusalem famine. They, built, they really had the church, the Christians had nowhere to turn for aid apart from asking God to help them and asking God to move on the hearts of other people in other towns to where the gospel had already spread and was on the move, that people would send aid back to them. That was really their prayer, that, that others would hear about their need and that they would show kindness by sending money and aid back to help them out. But communication was nothing like it is today. There was no news reporters, no humanitarian groups, no internet, no email. In those days, you had roads and you had messengers. And so if, if I wanted to get a message to someone far away, I'd, I walk the road and I bring a letter from people. Or I come and I tell you what has happened in Jerusalem. So Paul, one of the early church leaders, one of the main pioneers who took the gospel message of Jesus out, really, to many of the churches outside of Jerusalem, he begins to communicate this famine in Jerusalem. And he starts telling other people in those other churches, hey, the church in Jerusalem needs your help. They're dying. People are starving. They need your help. And so he's trying to rally funds to address the crisis that's going on in Jerusalem. And it's kind of like, if you were to put it into modern um, 
crisis. There's a very similar crisis right now going on in the Middle East. People are fleeing their countries because of religious persecution. And so in Syria, here's a picture of people fleeing you know, their homes and heading as refugees for just a safe place to live. And if you, if you watch the news or if you're reading the papers, you see this is happening. And we brought this to your attention probably, uh, well, several months back we brought up this crisis in the Middle East and we highlighted a ministry called Samaritan's Purse. It's led by Franklin Graham. It's Billy Graham's son who is, his ministry is helping to address the, the needs both physically and spiritually of those who are refugees and who are fleeing the religious persecution. But So this whole picture of what's happening here is what was happening in the first century. Okay, And what honestly happens in these situations is the gospel moves powerfully and spreads powerfully as people embrace Christianity and Christ and the hope that he has to offer. But, but that whole crisis is the context of the verses that we're going to look at. And I wanted to help you understand these two verses that we're going to get started. And we're going to look at some other verses, but that's the context of these verses. Because Paul, he brought up the, the need of the church in Jerusalem as he would travel to people. And one of the churches that he brought the need up to was the church in Corinth. And Corinth is an ancient city in, in modern day Greece that he traveled to. And when they first heard about the crisis in Jerusalem, they were so enthusiastic about it, about helping. They're like, oh, what? Our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem need our help? Count us in. Count us in, Paul. We want to help. That was their response. They were so enthusiastic. You read in the book of 1 Corinthians that they were like, yep, we're in. And he, he writes about how the enthusiastic they were and how encouraging that was to him. And their eager response, verbally, what it did was it spurred on other churches in Macedonia. So other regions started hearing that the Corinthian church was going to get on board. And so... What other people were like, hey, if they're getting in on this, we want to get in on too. We want in. Count us in, Paul. We don't want to miss out. And so other people jumped in to start helping as well. Because there was family connections back in Jerusalem. This was the mother church. In many ways, this was where things started. And so people wanted to pitch in and help. But the issue was someone needed to get the ball rolling. Okay, Someone needed to be the first one to, to say, hey, count us in. We're going to help. And so the Corinthian church that we're going to look at, they enthusiastically, verbally responded to Paul and said, count us in, man, we're going to help, Paul. But up to the point we're going to look at right now, they had yet to actually give to the cause. They said, we're in, but they, they had yet to really collect resources and actually, and, and actually get it out of their hands. And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he's reminding them that, hey, action shows the heart, not just talk. And so he's telling them, I'm sending a messenger to your church, and I want you to get your gifts ready to give to the, to the need. It's time to give. And so what I've tried to do is kind of summarize the issue. Okay? And I've summarized the first five verses of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5. I've kind of said, he's basically saying, get ready. You've promised this gift, now, now get ready, I'm coming to collect it. Okay? And then we come to verse 6. And just so you know, their verbal response that happened about a year before this, it caused other churches not to just say, yeah, we're in, but they actually gave the money. And so Paul's saying, hey, you, you spoke up, but you haven't done anything. They just said, we're in, and they, they actually they did something about it. So that's, that's the background here. Verse 6, though, is what we're going to look at. This, this verse 
illustrates the principle up here on the listening guide. Okay? It says this. Verse 6 reads, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He uses an analogy that in their culture would have been very familiar. Seeds, planting, harvest. You know, they were farmers. And so he's like, this is what you know. Whoever sees sparingly, you know, or sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. If you want to sow a lot of seeds, or if you do sow a lot of seeds, that brings about a great harvest down the road. So he's teaching this principle that the size of the harvest always corresponds to the scope of the sowing, of what we sow. And the same principle that they used in harvesting and farming applies to money and resources. And he's just applying it. He's saying, look, you can either use what you have in your resources right now for you, or you can sow it for a spiritual harvest for many people down the road. Now, to sow sparingly, these words here, it means to not be generous. To sow sparingly means to, to hold most of it back. It's just you're kind of just... You're casting a few seeds out there. And so he's saying if you do that, what comes back in life is a very small harvest, right? I mean, if you plant you know, just a couple of seeds of zucchini, you're not going to get this giant bunker crop of zucchini. You have to sow a lot to get a lot. And so he's saying it's the same with our resources. And so when he says the point is this, he's saying, look, I'm coming. Or someone's going to come to collect your gift. Now get ready. So bountifully, because he wants them to experience a bountiful harvest in their life. In fact, God pays attention to the attitude. This is the first thing we see from verse 7. God pays attention to the attitude when we're generous. As opportunities to be, for, for you to be generous or for me to be generous are presented to us in our lives, if we hear about a need or a family in crisis or a situation, our attitude towards that person or towards the need really matters. Matters to God. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Paul continues and he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. He's specifically talking about the famine impacting the church in Jerusalem. He's saying, Each one needs to decide in their own heart what to give. Not reluctantly, okay? Reluctantly means regretfully or I'm sad that I just did that. Like I gave it, but I'm like, Oh, why did I do that? That's, that's the reluctance. Or, he says, under compulsion. Like, we're feeling a tremendous amount of pressure. We have no options here. Our hands are tied. Maybe, maybe we we're even being manipulated. So, or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, these people, they knew about the need. Paul's encouraging them now. Be generous so bountifully. But not to do so flippantly, he says. Don't just do it flippantly. He says, think it over. Think about what you're going to give and then give sincerely from your heart because that type of joyful and generous giving, that whole attitude is what God loves to see in us. Well, why is that? Well, it's because God is generous. He's a giver. I mean, He's the one that gave us life, breath, food, skills, abilities. He's given us all of these things. And whenever we give generously, we reflect who God is. And He's pleased with that when He sees us. He sees that attitude. He's pleased with that. And Paul is just urging this church. He's like, get, get your gifts ready because he wants them to experience the harvest down the road in their lives. Now this is a spiritual reality he's talking about. It's a spiritual principle. And something to keep in mind is we don't give of our resources to get something. God is not put in a binding contract whenever we're generous. He's not bound to bring the harvest because we gave. 
We can't say, God, and some people say this, but we can't really say, God, where's my blessing? I want my blessing. I'm a generous person. I gave. Where's my blessing? Sadly, some people try to motivate giving in manipulative and even predatory ways out of fear tactics. Or, But generosity with selfish motivation is, is a violation of this attitude of cheerfulness and sincerity. It's like a parent of a married adult, adult married child who is giving gifts constantly to their adult married children. And as the adult child, you might accept the gift only later to realize they weren't giving gifts. They were buying stock in our marriage, in our family, and they're going to cash it in someday. And maybe they're trying to cash it in right now. And so there's this leverage and pressure. That's the wrong type of generosity, isn't it? Or in church life, I've heard stories of this. I've, I've never experienced this yet here. Um, about, about people who try to push an agenda on major decisions. And the leverage that they use is, after all we've done to support this place, I can't believe you're not going to do what I think here. And, and the leverage they use is this issue of money. And again, God's paying attention to the attitude of our heart whenever we're generous. So think about when you hear a need of a need. Maybe it's of someone close to you or just an opportunity. What are your thoughts? What are the emotions that follow? Just think through that. Is it worry? Is it fear? Like, man, I, I want to do something, but how will I pay my bills if I help? Or how, how will we eat? How will we cover this? Or maybe it's the emotion of annoyance. Like, why didn't they plan better? Why are they, why are they always in need? Or another offering, another special offering? Really? How much... How many offerings could this place really need? Or on the flip side of that, on the positive, maybe there's this emotion of inner compulsion. Like you hear about a need and someone in need or a situation or an opportunity and you're just compelled on the inside. Like, man, how can I get in on this? Like, how can I, if I do this and do this, man, I could, I could do even more. I could give even more. I can help even more. And so there's that opportunity or there's that possibility. And sometimes when we see that kind of extreme generosity with time, with resources, it blows people away. And it motivates other people to get in on that. And that's exactly what happened with the church in Corinth. They, even though they didn't do anything yet, their, their verbal response spurred on other people. But then when they later heard that others gave, they were convicted to give as well. And they actually did. Just so you know, Corinth did give. They supported the, the church with that crisis. But our attitude reveals a great deal about our heart, our perspective, and our values. So God looks at the attitude. Also, He's looking at the amount in proportion to the whole. When we're generous in our lives, we, we, we all are responsible for a certain amount of resources. We, we steward 100% of whatever we've got. And so... He's looking at how much are we being generous with? What's that proportion? Because he sees how much we have to work with. Now the ideas of sparingly and bountifully, that varies from person to person. So if we express the need and said, hey, it's going to be, we need, we need $100 for this right now. Right now, we need $100 for this situation. There's a family, they just really need this bill covered or their lights will go out. For this one person, giving sparingly, Maybe a hundred dollars. 
Like that may not, they may not even notice that the $100 left their bank account because they have that much to work with. Whereas to another individual, $100 may be a giant bountiful offering to God. And so God is not concerned. He's not concerned with the size of our gifts because he, he owns it all. So he's not impressed with, with the, the dollar signs or how many dollar signs. What he's looking at is what is that amount in proportion to what we've been given to work with? And as our generosity proportionally increases, that's a major statement of a growing generosity overtaking the whole person. To say, I'm going to increase my generosity. I'm going to become a more generous person year after year by raising the overall percentage of what I give away every year. It would mean that, that you and I, we would be learning to sacrifice and trust God more and more through the years. I'm growing in my faith through the years if I choose to do that. We actually see an amazing example of this, a proportional generosity where Jesus is at the temple. He's at the temple and people are dropping off their gifts in this offering box and and he's just watching this whole thing happen. And look at what he says, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box that's there at the temple. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now he's God in the flesh. Okay, remember this. This is Jesus. God in the flesh. He sees both the outside and the inside of people. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. He's not looking at the amount. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she... she, See, he saw the hearts of the people that were giving sparingly, but it was a lot of money. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. All she had to live on. For this woman, this was a representation of the whole. This represented the whole thing. She gave, and Jesus said, she gave all she had. She spared nothing. She sowed bountifully, in other words. What great faith in Jesus. He loved watching this, and He shines this giant spotlight on this woman and said, look at what what this lady just did. She offered up everything she had. Now, how can we become more like these people who actually offer up our resource to accomplish what God wants done in the world? How do you become that kind of a generous person? We don't need self-help books or financial seminars. It's not about more information. It's, it's about transformation of the heart. To become generous, we need a, a heart change. We need a heart transformation. One last story I want to share and then we're going to wrap up. It's, it's from Luke chapter 19. And it's the story of Zacchaeus. And this story illustrates this issue of heart transformation. It should bring hope to us. In fact, it shows how Jesus can transform our heart so we can live a more generous life. So look at chapter 19 of Luke, verse 1 through 10. It says, He, that's Jesus, He entered Jericho, this town, and He was passing through the town, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Chief tax collector means people worked for him to collect taxes. He had a great job with great money. He was in charge of charging more people or he was in charge of charging more taxes so that everyone got a piece of the pie and he got the the largest slice of that. Status and success were his. But he was an extremely unpopular person because he took money from his fellow Jews in order to give it to you know to the Romans who occupied their country. It says this in verse 3. 
So Zacchaeus, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd, he couldn't. He could not because he was small of stature. So he was a short fellow. And Zacchaeus, he heard who Jesus was. He was intrigued, but he was too short to see him. Couldn't catch a glimpse of him. Look what happens. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. He didn't want to miss it or pass that way. Someone caught a, a photo of it and we got a recovery of it. So it's blurry these days, but, you know, close to 2,000 years will do that. So when was the last time you ran to see someone you wanted to see? When was the last time you climbed up into a tree to get a better vantage point? The last time I remember doing that was I was probably in fourth grade and it was at a 4th of July parade in Sonoma where I was living in fourth grade and I was a boy. I wanted to get a, a good view of the parade. We had a great parade in our town. But that's normal for a child. But in that culture, men didn't run and men didn't climb trees. So the big question is, what would cause a grown man to humiliate himself and to be so urgent about this? Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Not only did Zacchaeus catch a glimpse of Jesus, but Jesus spoke to him directly. And then Jesus offers a hand of friendship and says, I want to stay at your house, Zacchaeus. You only went to the house of people that you really cared about. So this was an expression of love and care that Jesus extends his hand of friendship. Notice what Zacchaeus does. He hurries down. He doesn't delay. He doesn't say, I only wanted to see you. I didn't want to interact with you. He doesn't ignore the call of Jesus. He comes down and it says he welcomes the offer with joy. Then what happens next? Verse 7 says, And when they saw it, these were they as his critics, Jesus' critics, they all grumbled. They're taking shots at him constantly. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Critics were constantly taking shots at Jesus' ministry because Jesus loved people who were nothing like him. He loved the non-church people. He loved being with people who, who didn't have the background. He loved being pe- with people who were far from God. And he took shots for that. Why? Well, he, he wanted them to experience transformation of the heart. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood. So he goes to his house. And then while he's there in his house, it's like Zacchaeus stands up from a table or something. He stands up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, calls him Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of, every, of anything... I restore it fourfold. If I have, he has. (laughs) That's what they did in those days. Well, his, his heart was being transformed right before their very eyes. His whole picture of money and resources shifted. His heart softened and became moldable to God and and soft towards the things of God. And the grip of greed that was choking his life out was loosening up. Zacchaeus, he looked great on the surface. All the success and authority and status and comfort, but he was longing for more. Here was the guy. His whole life was built on money and and cheating people of it. He longed for more than that. He was also very lonely because of his lifestyle. Very lonely, lonely man. Longing for forgiveness for the things or for the wrong that he had done. So this statement that he makes of, I'm giving it back. In fact, I'm paying a whole lot more. People didn't do that. They might give back a little more, maybe double, but four times the amount. This was the declaration from a transformed heart. And it spoke powerfully. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today, 
Salvation has come to this house. Since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus acknowledged Zacchaeus' faith and his willingness to change the whole direction of his life. Salvation came. And right then and there, the lost was found. And Jesus is like, this is why I came to seek and save the lost. And it's come for this house today. It's an amazing picture I read. And we, we, get, we get in our mind. Zacchaeus, he realized that his whole vision for his life was all about getting, about taking, about using for himself. Here's a man that has spent his whole life, his whole career, building his nest egg. But then he saw that in Jesus there was a brand new way, a better way of how life could be lived. And so for him, he just he climbed a tree, he accepted what Jesus had to say, and he changed. It was his faith, though that caused him to run there. It was his faith that caused him to climb up in that tree. And it was his faith that brought about real repentance and change of his whole life. And what's fascinating about this story is that it all began with how, with changing how Zacchaeus approached his money. That was the tool that God was using in that moment. Because money is a tool that God uses to get at our heart. And this is what Jesus wants to do in all of our lives. He wants to replace our current vision for our life in all the different areas of our life, not just in our resources and in our generosity, but in everything, in our relationships and how we view eternity and how we view our purpose in life. And, and God wants to do that. He wants to change our hearts just like He does with this man. He wants to, if we wrestle with greed and selfishness, He wants to free us from that bondage. He wants to loosen that grip. In order to change our overall vision regarding money and resources. Now, the, the personal application for this, for these passages we've looked at, is probably going to vary from person to person, depending on how God has spoken to you this morning. Now, I want to invite our worship team to, to join me back up on the stage and just ask you to consider what is it that God has said to you this morning, and if there's something in particular that He's asking you to address in your life or change in your life in regards to the area of generosity, or maybe it's that God is using this just like He did in Zacchaeus' life to say, you know, really, it's not about the money, but it's about a heart that is wrapped around the wrong things. Maybe Jesus is saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. Because for Zacchaeus, he, he, was, he came face to face with a God who loved him and reached out to him. And he said, God, I, I'll do anything to follow you. I want to respond to you. And I want to encourage you to pull out this connection card. And, and on the back, it shows some next steps. Here's a few that we want to suggest to you, and then there's a blank line there if you have something else that you sense that God is asking you to do. One is memorize 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Those are the verses where Paul says about sowing bountifully and, and watching our attitude. This is a great verse to memorize. As we learn to be generous, that we would have the right attitude, that we'd examine that, that we'd wrestle down the wrong attitudes. One way to, to do that is to memorize verses that are on the subject of the topics that we're trying to, to grow in. The second one is choosing faith in these areas. Choosing faith towards in my attitude and then just in this whole idea of in, in my proportional generosity and the amount that I choose to give away. And then blank line there just if you've got something specific you'd like to, to jot down there you can let us know and we'd be aware of that. In a moment we're going to be uh, our ushers will be coming down the aisles. If you're a guest today, I just want thank you for coming and we'd invite you to drop your connection card in the basket as it comes around. Our church is financially supported by those who call this church their home and so 
Thank you. If that if that's if that's you and you give regularly here, and whether it's in our service or outside of our service through our website, thank you for supporting the ministry of Orange Crest Community Church. If you're a guest again, don't feel any pressure to participate in today's offering. Um, but we would love to know that you are here, and we'd love to, to be able to correspond with you. And so our hope is that we could help you and others take next steps with God, whatever that might be. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for your heart for us, Lord, that you... God, we've all gone our own way in life, and we've all had to wrestle down different issues. This is just one of many issues, God, that we can easily be walking our own path in as it relates to resources, Lord. And God, I pray that maybe this morning you've spoken to us and you've, you've kind of called us down from where we're standing and you said, look, I want to, I want to connect with you today. I want to go to your home and I want to dwell inside of you. I want to live with you. Lord, if there's any here that have never decided to yield their lives to you, Lord, I pray that today salvation would come to those. Just as it did to Zacchaeus and just as we've seen with so many people here who at a certain point realized that they were far from God in need of forgiveness and in hope. And it was offered to them by you and through the power of your Spirit as you work in us and as as the Father draws us yourself, Lord, so many have said, yeah, I'm ready to turn my life over to you, Lord. I pray that if there's any here that that describes them, that today they would, in the quietness of their own heart, just yield to you and say, I'm done fighting, I'm done running my own life, walking my own path, but that I would choose right here and right now to surrender to you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin. And I want to live for you as the Lord of my life. And I'll turn over everything to you. God, for those that are here that are wrestling with the issue of resources and stewardship, Lord, Lord, help us all to keep responding to you, Lord, at a heart level with our, with our resources and with our stewardship. Help us to grow in the area of generosity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.